What's up, everybody? This is Sarah, your host of Talks in the Hand podcast, a podcast about the 90s, everything you love about the 90s, and more. How you doing, everyone? How you doing, 90s kids, 90s kids at heart? I am by myself again this week. I realized I really like doing these by myself. Um, It gives me a chance to dive really deep into a specific topic um, on my own, and I love doing that. So, you know, it's so interesting to me that the world works out the way it does because I had this episode planned for weeks, 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 and weeks. This is the 26th episode, everyone. And I have been planning this episode for this particular week for a very long time. And the fact that the Meghan Markle and Prince Harry um, interview with Oprah came out last night after I finished the last, I put the last dot over the I, I crossed the last T on this um, outline for this episode. It was two, it was like literally like 20 minutes later that this, um, this interview broadcast with Oprah. So, um, I am just going to, I took a deep dive into this topic, but I'm going to kind of shift a little bit because I feel like as nineties kids, as people, um, as we, you know, experience this, this as kids or, you know, 30 years ago, if you weren't a kid, when you went, when we went through this collectively, um, we're going through a very uh, interesting other side of the mirror with um, Meghan Markle. But if you can't tell by now, um, I am talking about Princess Diana, specifically in her um, her years in the public eye in the 90s. But, you know, we she was, she was very active in the 80s, so we will talk about that as well. Um, and I also wanted to tie it all together with um, the revelations that we have learned about the um, royal family in the UK with the documentary we saw last night. Um, with Oprah. So, um, I want to give you a trigger warning. I know by now you, um, probably understand there's a ton of, uh, you know, coverage of suicidal ideation of, um, eating disorders of tons of mental health, depression, mental health issues, depression, bipolar personality disorder. Um, just, there's a lot of really, really heavy stuff, public humiliation, like we discussed in the Monica Lewinsky episode, um, you know, shame, all of that. So please proceed with caution. If any of those, um, that content is particularly triggering to you. Um, but if not, uh, please, uh, you know, continue with us. This is a really important thing to talk about. Um, and it's, it just, you know, it, it lines up with where we are, um, as a collective right now. And, I am going to talk about Diana and I'm going to kind of wing it when it comes to Megan and my thoughts about how these two tie together. So um, I think it's going to be a really interesting episode. I think it's a really, really um, important topic that we talk about right now. But before we get into the topic, please make sure you're following us on social media. Our Twitter is TTTHpod. Instagram is TalkToTheHandPod. You can email us at TalkToTheHandPod at gmail.com. And you can also go to our website at TalkToTheHandPod.com. I'm also going to give you a little caveat. Um, I have a lot of energy right now. It's about 5 p.m. in the afternoon. I don't usually record um, this early. I usually record later because I'm kind of a later person anyway. Um, so I have a lot of uh, noise outside of my door. So you're, I, as I've told you before, I on a really busy street. So, um, it might get a little noisy, but you know what? I'll cut that out and post and it'll be fine. So we'll just pretend that, you know, you can't even hear any of it. Like what, what noise, what, what street noise? (laughs) Um, also wanted to make sure I reminded you again, please, please, please. If you like what you hear or what you've heard, um, please make sure you leave us a five-star review on Apple. It really helps us with the algorithms. Um, and in the month of March, we are going to do a giveaway at the end of the month. If you leave a comment, um, on your five-star review, make sure you have a name in there so we can call you out. Um, but if you leave a comment, we're going to pick one at the end of the month and, uh, should be a really cool, uh, 90s gift box with a TTTH dad hat, um, a gigapet, some other really fun 90s stuff as well. So, um, so yeah, I think that's it. I think that's all the updates I have for you. I'll put all the, um, sources in the show notes, but you know, I honestly didn't use that many sources. I could tell you for this one, I mostly just did a little deep dive into her background and kind of the things that surrounded her public life. Um, so, but anything I did use, I will put in the show notes and as well as the content warnings, if you, uh, care to share this with anyone so they can, um, learn ahead of time what they're going to get themselves into for the next 40 something minutes. So, um, okay. So today we are talking about Prince 
Princess Diana. She was known as the People's Princess, the heir apparent to the British throne, the mother of Prince William and Prince Harry. She was an activist. She was a Cancer Sun, Aquarius Moon, Sagittarius Rising, if you're an astrology person. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And she was also uh, the first wife of Prince Charles of Wales. And Diana was born in July 1961 in England, um, Diana Frances Spencer in Sandringham. I think that's how you pronounce it. She was actually born into a family of nobility and um, she was kind of she just never kind of stood a chance at having a normal life. Um, in her, she grew up really close to the royal family. Her grandmothers, uh, she had three of them that served as ladies in waiting to Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Um, in her family, she was known as Dutch, which was a reference to her Duchess like attitude in, in uh, childhood. And, you know, she had a couple siblings. Um, the closest one she was, the one that she was closest to is her older sister, Sarah, who was um, known as Lady Sarah. And, um, but she just kind of was always this little like outsider. She, her parents knew they wanted a boy heir to carry on their name. Um, and she had a little brother who died after she was born. But when she when she was about a year old, but they just desired an heir um, so badly that it really strained her parents uh, marriage. And when she was seven years old, when they divorced, she had a really, really rough relationship with her stepmom. Um, she later described her childhood as very unstable, very unhappy. And if you can just picture just being this like young girl, this just young, youthful girl, and she's a cancer. So she's probably very um, emotional and um, expressive and uh, loving and supportive, um, but she is told to stay in line and she's, she's just, it's hard for her to stay in line. She just feels like she doesn't fit there, but she doesn't, she knows that she has nowhere else to really go. She was homeschooled by a governess and then she went to a private school and then an all girls boarding school when she was nine. So if you can imagine, she like was born into this, this nobility. She was born into this like restrictive, um, you know, with all these boundaries placed around her. Um, but she really didn't shine academically, but she was a very, uh, she was actually known for her outstanding community spirit. She even won an award for it at school. Um, she was really shy, but she had a talent for music and she was a wonderful pianist. Um, she was also really good at swimming and diving and ballet and tap dance. So you can just picture this very expressive little quiet little girl um, with a rough go from the beginning trying to make it. And I think we can all understand that. Um, she eventually ended up at a finishing school in Switzerland. And this that's kind of what breaks my heart for her is that she was to her family almost. And I'm sure they loved her. Um, but it almost seemed like she was just kind of a pawn in this in this game, in this royal monarchy game. And, um, you know, she didn't ask for it. That's just what she got. Uh, she she just seemed much too too uh, reserved and not necessarily needing um, that grandeur and the glitz and glamour and jewels. She just wanted to help people. That's really what she wanted. She just wanted to help people. So um, so she left the finishing school eventually and she moved to London. She lived with a few friends. Um, she actually took some jobs. Like a, she, uh, she was a dance instructor and a preschool assistant. She hosted parties. She worked as a nanny. Um, she also worked as a nursery teacher's assistant. So she had these jobs where she worked with people and she, you know, she was just, she liked helping people and she, especially kids. If you, you know, look at her resume, it's all working with little kids. Um, and that said, I mean, this is a very gauche way to transition, but she was also kind of a kid when she met Charles. She was 16 years old. Um, Charles, the Prince of Wales, was the Queen's eldest son and heir apparent. Um, they met in 1977, like I said, when she was 16 years old, and he was dating her older sister, Sarah. So he was also 12 years older than her. So he was nearing 30. And here's this 16-year-old girl. But um, she caught his eye as a potential bride, and he started courting her, yuck, um, and then they got engaged. She picked out her ring. Um, she quit her job as the nursery teacher's assistant, and then she moved into Buckingham Palace. And she actually is, it's noted, she's said explicitly many times how lonely she was there. Just remember that point when we talk about Megan in just, just a little bit. Um, so she was 20 years old. She when she married Charles and became princess of Wales in July, 1981. And I mean, like, like literally like just turned 20, like her birthday is July 1st. And this was a few weeks later in July. Like she literally was just 19, just 
a couple weeks ago. Um, it was known as a fairy tale wedding, and it was watched on TV by a global audience of 750 million people. That's three quarters of a billion people, everyone. That's how many people watched it on TV. And there were 600,000 spectators on the street en route to the ceremony at St. Paul's Cathedral. That was bigger than the usual Westminster Abbey because they were expecting such a massive, massive viewership. And you can really see that it's because of her. She had this sparkle. She had this intrigue and she just seems so down to earth and so lovely and pleasant and people were enamored with her. Um, but I just, you know, a couple things I wanted to point out to you um, during the wedding at St. Paul's Cathedral, she accidentally reversed Charles' two middle names um, when she was saying her vows, which just goes to show you how little she really knew him. Um, he has like four names and she just inadvertently reversed the two metal ones. Um, she also didn't say that she would obey him in her vows, which was a traditional thing, um, but they asked to keep it out and it caused some comment at the time. Um, her dress, Diana's dress, had a 20-foot long train, if you can believe it. It was very beautiful, very expensive. She announced her pregnancy in no November of 1981 and like literally they just got to work getting knocked up. Like that's kind of all she was used for by Charles and um, his family, other than the fact that she brought this new popularity and this like fresh breath of air. Um, she was like, I mean, you can just picture this just her 19 year old girl, like newly 20 year old girl having like the um, print, like the first prince that will be the heir, like likely could become king. Um, so that's what she was used for. In January 1982, she was 12 weeks into her pregnancy. And this is what really, really broke my heart. She was 12 weeks into her pregnancy when she fell down a set of stairs. So um, she, you know, there was big to do about it. They brought a gynecologist um, out to the palace and they did a, you know, a full workup on her found out that the fetus was uninjured, but she later confessed that she threw herself down the stairs on purpose because she felt so inadequate. Okay, just sit with that for a second. In June 1982, Prince William was born and she this was a very dark period of her life as well. She suffered major postpartum depression after um, she just really, really struggled. And she also kind of made it known. She really didn't try to hide her um, issues with mental health. And, you know, the tabloid press, the, the British tabloid press, which is so intimately linked to the royal family and the crown and the firm and the institution, everything they called it. The tabloid press is basically an extent, like another branch of government there in the UK, according to all these sources. And um, so her, you know, woes and her mental health issues were splashed across headlines for the whole world to see. And she maintained her grace and her dignity, but she suffered major postpartum depression after Prince William was born in June 1982. Um, but, you know, she uh, she just kept on going. She took William with her on her first major tours of Australia and New Zealand, which people criticized her for at first and then applauded for it. Like, seriously, these people, these women just can't win. They can't win. You know, whether they do something, they're going to piss people off, whether they don't do something, they're going to piss people off. Like it's really, truly a heartbreaking thing to see women go through this system. She uh, had Prince Harry um, in September of 1984. She said it was really the only time, like the closest time that she and Charles felt to each other. She also was a great mom. She really was. You, you can hear them talk at uh, William and Harry talk about her. And she was a very loving mom. She gave her kids wider, quote unquote, wider experiences than usual royal children. She rarely deferred to Charles or the royal family when it came to raising her kids. She chose their names. She hired and fired their nannies. She picked their schools. She picked their clothes. She planned all of their get togethers, their play dates, their outings, everything. Took them to school herself as her schedule permitted. She was very, very involved. She really organized her public duties around her timetable as a mother and around her kids. And let's remember, she's in her young 20s at the time, and she's already this maternal. And I know she worked with kids so much, um, and she was just a very nourishing person. And she probably knew from working so closely with kids and also not getting that herself as a kid, that what kids needed the most was emotional nourishment and encouragement and support and just to see them 
just to just to acknowledge them. And it seems honestly like her parents probably never really acknowledged her, like sending her off to all these different private and boarding schools, and like all girls schools. Like maybe she wanted to be a tap dancer. We don't know. We'll never know. I mean, unless something comes out like a diary or something, maybe she wanted to be a ballet dancer. Maybe she wanted to work with kids the rest of her life. Maybe she wanted to be a pediatrician. Like, can you just imagine, think of Diana Spencer as a pediatrician. I mean, she would be in her, I don't know, 50s, 60. She would be 60 years old this year. She could still be working. She could be, I mean, I, okay, sorry. I'm going off on a tangent. Woo. I'm getting myself worked up and I'm getting lots of uh, goosebumps. So let's just sit for a moment and just imagine what life would be like for Diana. If she could just do one of the things that she really wanted to do, but you know what? She loved her kids, loved her kids. And you can tell, and you can tell, and that became her identity and her life force. And that is so beautiful. And I'm going to cut a little bit here to noting her relationship with Charles. She basically had none. <laughs> like at this point, like it was kind of her and the kids, like Charles was still like having affairs. I mean, it was well known in throughout the entire circle that he was back and forth with Camilla. And so, so Diana didn't even have Charles. Like all she had were these two kids that she adored and she just wanted to nourish and just nurture. And she was good at it. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out too was um, Harry in the interview um, and Megan in the, in the interview last night with Oprah, they even, you know, Harry even said, what Megan went through was so similar to what Diana went through, um, but at least they had each other. Diana didn't have Charles. There was no one there for Diana. Not that she needed anyone there, but it would have been nice. You know, it would have been nice. And maybe it could have saved her life to have someone else there. It doesn't have to be a spouse. It could be, you know, someone within the family. It could be part, you know, one of the people that works for them or something like she just didn't have anyone. And she was so lonely. And if you can picture Megan Markle, if you watched the interview and you can picture how lonely Megan was, Megan had Harry. Okay. Diana didn't have that. And she had kids, but you know, I'm sure I'm not a parent, but I'm sure parents can tell you there's only so much kid stuff you can do before you go crazy and you need interaction with an adult. Right. I mean, Diana didn't have that. She truly didn't have that. Um, but one thing she did, and I'm sure this is where she kind of poured everything, every part of her, her identity was wrapped up in princess. It was princess and it was mom. Mom, she had under control, right? She she got that. She has that that image. She has that that lifestyle. She gets it. She gets that, that part 100%. Princess, she knew how to do it because she grew up in it, but she needed to figure out how to take it and just mold it into something that she could work with. And the way she did that was in community service. She was majorly involved in community service. She made lots of regular public appearances at hospitals, at schools. And by 1991, she carried out 397 official engagements a year. That's almost 400 a year focusing on serious illnesses and health-related ma matters. She was really big in the AIDS, um, you know, pandemic. She was really big in um, fighting destigmatization of AIDS and leprosy. Um, and she was really involved in like children's cancers and things like that. Stephen Lee, the director of the UK Institute of Charity Funding fundraising managers has said her overall effect on charity is probably more significant than any other person's in the 20th century. That's what she did. That's how she, she just looked at this role that she already had the mother down, but she needed to figure out how to get the, the princess down. And she just said, well, look, you know, I love being, I love helping people. I love kids. I love, you know, I, I have a, a soft spot for everyone. And especially people who are stigmatized by things beyond their control. And I, I just, I, she loved these people. So she wanted to help them. So some of the other um, issues she was very passionate about, she campaigned for animal protection and against the use of landmines. She was really big in the um, charities that removed debris after, you know, war torn um, battles or scuffles or whatever happened. Um, a lot of landmines would get left behind. So she was very supportive of the, um, charities and nonprofits that worked to remove those to protect the children and the communities around them. 
She also worked with unhoused individuals, with youth, with addiction, with elderly. She even worked in the museums and the arts. Her roster and her like resume as a community service person is incredible. Go check it out, even if you just Google it. She even worked for um, you know societies for the deaf and for the blind, and she learned sign language. <laughs> she also you know created cancer funds for children. Um, and one of the big, biggest, biggest things she did, I think, one of the most visible. I don't want to say biggest because all of them were huge, but probably one of the most visible things she did was her work with AIDS patients in the 80s um, and in the 90s. One of the things that she, I'm getting, like, honestly, I wish you could see, I'm getting goosebumps just, like, thinking about it. Her big mission was to destigmatize. I know I've told, I've mentioned, you know, like, she's really into, like, research and health issues, and, like, she wanted to, of course, she wanted to, you know, bring awareness to the fact that, AIDS research needed to be funded and hospitals needed to be funded. But the other thing she really wanted to do was to change public perception of patients with and, and people living with AIDS. And so the way she would do that is she made groundbreaking public appearances, hugging, shaking hands, you know, embracing, snuggling, um, just like being really affectionate with people living with HIV and AIDS. And she, that was just really groundbreaking at the time. And she was such a huge part of that destigmatization. She even said one time, HIV does not make people dangerous to know. You can shake their hands and give them a hug. Heaven knows they need it. What's more, you can share their homes, their workplaces, and their playgrounds and their toys. So she's also cross-generational there. She's not just telling adults, hey, like, don't look at these people differently. They're just like you and me. She's telling kids that too. She's like, hey, you know someone with that? Play with their toys because they're totally fine. You can share it. I promise. Like, it's, it's really kind of um, a groundbreaking thing that she did in the 80s. And she became a pretty big gay cultural icon in the 80s because of it and the 90s and still today. Um, the queen didn't like it, though. The queen actually told her she should get involved in something more pleasant. <laughs> yeah. OK, just going to leave that there. Uh, she opened Grandma's House in October of 1990, which was a home for young AIDS patients in Washington, D.C. Um, and then in March of 1997, she met South African President Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela actually planned to work with um, in alignment with her nonprofit that she was launching just a few months before she died. You know, she passed away and then they ended up um, doing this collaboration. And Mandela said that she used her status to fight stigma attached to people living with HIV AIDS. Um, she, like I said, she was also involved in the organizations that re removed the uh, landmine debris left behind by war. And here she was accused of, quote, meddling in politics. <laughs> See, like I said, can't win. Cannot when as a woman, especially in the royal family. Her work is actually um, in the, uh, you know, removing debris by landmines. Her work is actually considered influential to the signing of the Ottawa Treaty, which created an international ban on the use of anti-personnel landmines. So she actually had a, I mean, I don't want to say she actually had a massive um, legacy that lives on. She had so many legacies in so many different areas of nonprofit and charity work. And this was such a huge one that had actual policy outcomes from it. Um, she also worked with uh, cancer research, particularly children with leukemia. And um, in December of 1993, I think it just all got to be too much. She announced that she'd withdraw from public life. She returns a little bit in November of 1994. You know, this is kind of when the, I think people in, um, around the world kind of started to see the marriage cracking a little bit. You know, I think, um, after the kids there, people were starting to see how just incompatible Charles and Diana were as well as their big age difference. Um, so she's, you know, she's in her twenties and thirties when she's doing that. And, you know, Charles is established in his forties and whatever fifties. And, He's, you know, he already had this girlfriend, Camilla, that he's clearly having relationships with on and off while he's married to Diana. He has other relationships. He apparently had a uh, relationship with their nanny that actually Diana hired um, named Tiggy and I or Tiggy or something like that. Um, but 
uh, she eventually left and became Charles' personal assistant. And then, like, they had an affair and it was just kind of all over the news. But, you know, Diana also had her um, her love affairs as well. Um, she had one with Major James Hewitt, who was the family's forder, former writing instructor. Um, some people really, I mean, this this breaks my heart. There was a lot of, like, speculation among the, um, the media that... Uh, this major James Hewitt guy was Harry's dad. Um, but Hewitt and then others have denied it um, just because of timing and all of that. But that just kind of shows you how like how shitty um, the women in the royal family have it. <laughs> like, come on, leave her alone. It's not it's not a, a secret that, uh, like I said, that Charles was with Camilla um, and Diana knew it wasn't a secret and they were often cold to each other. She didn't really say anything about it in the press. And then it was at Camilla's sister's birthday party that Diana finally confronted Camilla about her and Charles. And following, that is right, right before, the step before we see the gorgeous revenge dress. And I will put a picture of Diana in her revenge dress on um, the Instagram so you can see it. But she's just like, you know, you're going to cheat on this, really? 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 <laughs> so, um but, you know, under that really gorgeous, beautiful dress, beautiful, beautiful dress, she was so unhappy. She was so unhappy. She was um, she had su suicidal ideations. Um, she was just so lonely and just breaking. She was battling bulimia. Um, she just self mutilation. She was just really, really, truly, truly broken inside. And I, it's just it just breaks my heart. And hearing Megan talk about what she went through sounds exactly exactly like what Diana went through with the added layer that Megan is multiracial and um, also experiences, I'm sure, just absolutely disgusting levels of racism and um, systemic white supremacy. Uh, just, you know, I think I think we take Diana's story and we um, add that layer on it. And it's just I, I just can't I can't even bear to think about it. I just it gives me so much respect for Megan um, to come out and to Harry, but I'll again talk about that in just a little bit. Um, the Queen tried to keep uh, Diana and Charles together. Prince Philip wrote to Diana and told him how disappointed he was in both of their affairs and asked her to re-examine her behavior from Charles' point of view. I'm sorry, what? That's truly, truly gross. You know, Philip later denied any allegations of insulting Diana and whatever. She was like, okay, fine. Like, he, his heart's in the right place, I guess. Um, but anyway... In 1992, 1993, some tapes were leaked that made Charles and Diana look really bad. The transcripts were published, including intimate exchanges between Charles and Camilla. At that time, Diana said that Charles, quote, made me feel so inadequate in every possible way that each time I came up for air, he pushed me down again. That's that's really hard to read, right? <laughs> she blamed Camilla. Um, she said at one time, she said, well, there are three of us in this marriage, so it's a little bit crowded. Um, and she also knew about her husband's other affairs, especially with the nanny. Um, but, and you know, she had her relationships with other people during this time. She dated a married art dealer, a rugby player, a financial guy. Um, and then it was in November 1985 that she revealed publicly her battles with depression, bulimia, and self-harm. She talked about her mental illnesses on an interview with the BBC's show Panorama, which was basically the tipping point. And that's when the queen basically said, OK, it's time. It's time to end this. Um, it was backed by the prime minister, which, again, is gross to me that it had to be backed by anyone but herself. And then the divorce was finalized in August of 1996. Um, she signed confidentiality agreement. He did, too. She lost her royal highness um, title and it was instead styled as Diana, Princess of Wales. Um, and she still had the royal family um, kind of at her disposal, if you want to call it that, because of her sons. The queen wanted to let Diana use her royal highness title after the divorce, but apparently... Charles insisted that they remove it. And there's a cute story, um, although I don't know how cute I feel about Prince William right now, but um, there's a cute little story about Prince William saying, reassuring her, don't, don't worry, mommy, I will give it back to you one day when I am king. After her 1986 divorce, she lived in the same uh, double apartment she had with Charles since their first year of marriage, and she stayed there until her death. Um, she had access to the jewelry that she received during the marriage, and she was still allowed to use the royal air transport. 
And she dated, you know, after the divorce, she dated around. Uh, there was a um, heart surgeon named Hasnat Khan, who was apparently, according to her friends, the love of her life. She described him as Mr. Wonderful. It was pretty secret, but they dated for about two years. Apparently, she ended it. Um, and there was a really heartbreaking moment from her mom. Um, you know, remember, her mom was also nobility. Um, her mom disapproved of her relationship with a Muslim man. So, um, so Diana just can't do anything she actually wants. Like, it's just the only thing she wants, like I've said before, is to help and nurture and nourish and encourage others to grow and just really love on people and love on kids and love on the sick and love on the elderly and love on the people who are, you know, addicted to drugs or unhoused or um, just in, in bad situations. And that's what she did. That's that was her one shining shining spot. Um, she, but you know, when it came to her own personal happiness and her own personal nourishment, she couldn't even date someone that she called Mr. Wonderful that other people called the love of her lives because the nobility disapproved of her relationship with a Muslim man. She and this, um, Mr. Wonderful, um, ended up breaking up. And in, um, that summer she, began vacationing in the South of France with a, um, hotel or a property owner and his son, Dowdy Fayed. Um, he was the son of the family who hosted her that summer in the South of France. And, um, you know, she started dating him. It sounds like they were kind of just casual, but just like really did like each other. Um, either way, they didn't have a long time to get to know each other because, um, on August 31st, 1997, Diana Dart died in a car crash at the Pont de l'Alma tunnel in Paris while the driver was fleeing from the paparazzi. Um, this also resulted in the deaths of Dowdy and their driver, Henri Paul. Her bodyguard survived um, and the funeral was televised on September 6th and was watched by 32.1 million British viewers. And it was one of the highest UK viewings ever and millions more around the world watched it. And, you know, there's a lot of um, speculation around her death. Um, there's a lot of really heartbreaking things about it. She died of a really small, very rare injury. It was like a tear in the vein of her lung. Um, there are a lot of questions about what caused the accident. Um, the driver was, you know, like I said, Han Henri was the acting head of security. Um, he was licensed. So how did he drastically lose so much control of the car while they were um, fleeing from the paparazzi? And, you know, it, they did the autopsy. They did the investigation. It turns out that, um, according According to a statement by the French authorities, um, Paul's blood exceeded the legal um, blood alcohol limit. He had been drinking and driving recklessly. But according to the eyewitnesses, there was much more involved. Their black Mercedes was actually being pursued, just like relentlessly pursued by the paparazzi in cars, on motorcycles. Um, and there's a lot of conspiracies about it. Like Dowdy's father believes that he was that she was pregnant with a son, um, which was later disproven by forensics um, and that she was killed by the MI6, um, all kinds of uh, conspiracies, but they were all debunked. And um, the findings were released in Operation Paget, which the investigation was called and was released in 2006. Um, the paparazzi apparently on scene took photos instead of calling for help, like took photos. And can we just take a moment and reflect back to framing Brittany and to Monica Lewinsky and just think about all these women who've had the, the deepest, darkest, most painful, most life-threatening and ultimately fatal experiences that were just, that people were just spectators to. It's truly disgusting. So she was 36 years old when she died. So young, so young. Um, and after she died, Prince William and Prince Charles were very uh, shielded from the public. Her, it sounds like the queen really wanted to keep them away from just what the tabloid and media were talking about, obviously. Um, and that might be, a, I think that was definitely a good thing. Uh, the funeral took place on September 6th in Westminster Abbey. Her family and representatives from some of her charities walked behind the funeral procession. Elton John wrote Candle in the Wind in 1997 in tribute to Diana. And the global proceeds went to her charities. She was actually buried holding rosary 
beads that Mother Teresa gave her. Um, and because ironically, they died in the exact same week. Her engagement ring and yellow gold watch were given to Harry and William, respectively. They swapped and William let it later pass the ring to his wife, Kate, and Diana's dress, wedding dress went to Harry. And quite honestly, like, I don't think Megan cares, but I think Megan deserves that. This might be a hot take, but Megan deserves that Diana ring much more than Kate does. Just saying. Anyway, um, so the legacy of Diana, she's definitely one of the most popular members of the royal family throughout history. She's often described as the world's most photographed woman, and she's known for her compassion, style, charisma, charity work. Um, and then, of course, her ill-fated marriage with Charles. Um, it's so obvious. So, so obvious. And her former secretary backed this up. The Charles was so threatened by her popular which is so gross. And if you look at Megan and Harry, like Megan even herself said it was after her first trip to Australia that they, that the Royal family became really, really threatened by her popularity. Everyone could relate to Megan. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I, I've never really, I, I was just talking to my sister about this this morning. I've never really gotten good vibes from Kate. And I'm not saying this to be disparaging at all. Like I just, I always thought Megan was more relatable um, and the world did too. I mean, I wasn't alone in that sentiment. I think I can safely say that. And the Brown family knew that. They knew that. Um, same thing with, with Diana. She was so... Um, easy to connect to. And she was so accessible. And I think that's the one thing about Megan too, is she, even though she was a movie star or a TV star before she was a uh, duchess, she's accessible. She seems relatable. You see her high school pictures. Yeah. You see Kate Middleton's too, but you see her as a, you know, prom queen or doing her modeling pictures. Whereas you see Megan as like this goofy, goofy little high school kid that you probably went to school with. And that's and I think also because she's American is a big deal. And she's also biracial and just, you know, just interesting. She's just a very interesting human being um, on her own, just in her own right, in her own accomplishments and her own sphere. And um, that really, really uh, threatened the royal family and the same thing with Diana. Although Diana was different because she really didn't have an outside sphere. Her sphere was that, um, that family, that royalty, that nobility, that lifestyle, that level of wealth and, um, you know, attentiveness yet also being so lonely. And, um, so that was the big difference I think between, um, Diana and, well, and I've said before, you know, obviously that level of um, biracial uh, identity with with Megan also adds a new complicated layer as well. Um, but she but Diana was known as a tough but very fair and appreciative boss, loving figure. She could be tempestuous, but also a deep thinker and, of course, a devoted mother. Um, people called her smart, shrewd and funny. She was led by her heart. She had a strong character um, and she just had this really passive power. And I've heard it described that she could charm people with a simple glance. Um, she was really, really appreciated worldwide for her encounters and those very public um, displays of, of compassion and love and just kindness to um, sick and dying patients. She was very mindful of people's thoughts and feelings, and she was just very easygoing. A lot of people called her breath of fresh air. And Prime Minister Tony Blair was the one that gave her the name, the People's Princess. And he said that she showed the nation there was a new way to be British. And if you think about, too, at the time, we're also talking about um, the Spice Girls, remember? We, the, like the cool, like uh, cool Britannia. And there was just like this new way to be cool. Um, Diana's relationship with the press and the paparazzi has often been described as ambivalent. On certain times, certain occasions, she would complain about how she was being treated by the media. Um, and then she would, you know, she would say like it just made life impossible because they were always there. Um, but other times she would actually seek them out. So and hand inf information to reporters herself, usually in conjunction with her charitable causes. Um, she did let the press dictate her life, though, and she also used the media's interest to amp in her to amplify her causes. Um, people, you know, she was criticized at the time for being possessive, unpredictable, egocentric. Acu people accused her of doing charity for personal reasons. And then after she died, these same critics were just poof, like everyone loved her. This feels so typical for women. When women know what they want and they set themselves up for 
it. They're called manipulative or egocentric sometimes. And now I don't, you know, I don't know her and I don't want to pretend like I know her or I know that what she was like as a person. But I do want to note that women, especially at that time, were often criticized for what would be called good business or leadership in men. Um, but, you know, that's that's a whole topic for a different episode. And that's not this podcast. So if you want to talk to me about that, though, like hit me up. We can go get some coffee. I can talk about that for hours. I wanted to also touch on the fact that she was a major style icon. Um, she kind of, you know, you think of um, Kate and you think of of Megan as being the style. Like especially Kate was really played up as a style icon. It was Diana that laid the groundwork for that. That was all Diana's foundation work. Um, she had the, They said that she had the ability to just sell clothes just by looking at them. Um, designers just just climbed over each other to work with her. And, and that was because she used fashion and style to really endorse her charity causes. She uses it to ex- express herself and communicate. And that was also a way she could express. She was a very expressive person and she couldn't express herself in very many ways within the royal family. So she did it through clothes. Um, she was considered a major inspiration to stylists and celebrities. And she was a major ambassador for rocking hats. She really, really developed this trend for hats. She also developed her own personal trend. She was very thoughtful about how her clothes would be interpreted. Um, And then a lot of designers say that she kind of had this royal uniform um, for tours and visits. She just looked really put together and refined, but yet still so accessible and so warm and, and, like you could approach her and know that she would sit down and listen to you, give you that eye contact that you crave, you know, maybe nod her head when you need her exactly to nod her head. That's just who she was. And she used her clothes to, to amplify that. Um, as I mentioned before, she had, you know, her very famous revenge dress was a cocktail dress by Christina Stambolian, which she wore at a charity event after Charles admitted to his affair. She also wore this dress called the Travolta dress, which which was um, she wore to a reception at the White House. And I guess she danced with John Travolta, but it was a really beautiful evening gown um, by Victor Edelstein. And she wore major fashion fashion labels like Versace, Armani, Chanel, Dior. Um, She really liked florals. Um, She liked these big blouses. She was very into her signature pearls. Those became trends in the 90s. Um, Later, she perfected the use of blazers, one shoulder and off shoulder dress, two tone military suits, white shirts and jeans, plaid dresses, jumpsuits, sheath dresses. If you look at any of like the fashion right now and you see like biker shorts and like long slouchy shirts, but they look so effortlessly cool and chic. That was Princess Diana's like inspiration. Like she just, she still inspires, like, especially now in this resurgence of nineties fashion. I mean, you can look at it and pin all of that back to Diana. Her short hairstyle was created by Sam McKnight after a Vogue photo shoot in 1990. And this is also cool. She also did all of her own makeup. And I do remember Kate saying that she did all of her own makeup for, you know, her major appearances as well. Um, like I said, in 2016, ASOS had a Diana-inspired collection. There's a lot of inspiration from Diana in um, today's trends in fashion. So after she died, too, there were a lot of memorials, like the Beanie Baby Purple Bear with a white rose that was a Princess Diana bear. Um, that one was so... Uh, special and so um, coveted. And I mean, you can remember that beautiful royal indigo purple color. And uh, it was just a very, very um, special, um, you know, commemorative memorial um, item in the culture, uh, pop culture for her. Um, There's lots of movies about her. Most recently, Naomi Watts played Diana in 2013 and Emma Corrin in The Crown in 2020, which I have to admit I have not seen. But um, yeah, let me know what you think about her portrayal, either of their portrayals of Diana, if you watch The Crown. Um, in 1999, A Freedom of Information, this is, an, this is just a really interesting thing I just learned. In 1999, A Freedom of Information Act re- request revealed that Diana was under surveillance by the National Security Agency until her death and that they had a top secret file on her. But the NSA refused to release the documents saying she wasn't a target of their massive eavesdropping infrastructure but they wouldn't say what they collected. And Diana often said that she uh, thought she was being monitored and that all the members of the royal family were being monitored. So um, a few last notes on, um, you know, Diana and Megan. Um, and, you know, I'm going to tie this into uh, Monica Lewinsky and Britney Spears as well. One of the things that Megan Markle talked about in her um, interview with Oprah was that there's just this 
desperate need for compassion for people in the public eye. You never know what is going on behind closed doors. If you see that picture of a celebrity and her face looks puffy and her clothes look, you know, frumpy, you don't know. Like before you jump to say like, oh my gosh, she's gained weight or whatever. You don't know. You don't know that Britney Spears shaving her head is ha- she's having a literal like mental break because of the immense pressure, immense, immense pressure. You don't know that that 22 year old intern that you are making fun of for her semen stained, uh, stained dress or the cigar used as a sex prop. You don't know that you're making fun of her, but that that public humiliation is causing such deep, deep, deep trauma. There's just, we just don't know what's going on behind closed doors. And that's one of the things that Meghan Markle really, really um, honed in. I think that was one of the takeaways, definitely um, not the biggest takeaway from that interview with Oprah. um, But one of the big ones I took away in terms of these women that we've seen um, that we remember the press and the the culture at large just relentlessly going after and dragging these women. And and now we're like, wait, we really did them wrong back then. Really, really did them wrong. Well, Megan's giving us a chance. Like she's giving us a chance to look at that and re-examine that. Monica Lewinsky now in her work with um, you know, with anti-bullying and um Me Too is giving us a chance to just re-examine how we treated them back then and how and Britney Spears, framing Britney Spears, the New York Times documentary is really giving us a, a, a very crystal clear view into how we as society consume and click and, and we need to do that with so much more compassion. Okay. If you are not a person that's making or creating the broadcasts or the pictures or the blog posts or whatever, that's getting this information, these photos out into the public, you are the one consuming it. So be compassionate with your con with your consumption, be compassionate, be aware, like, like, research things, learn things. If you see a headline about why is Meghan Markle cradling her baby bump and there's all kinds of wild speculation about it, maybe do a little research before you jump to any kind of conclusions. And I think that's what Megan and what I think Diana would be really proud of Megan for um, putting that out there as as well. I think, um, you know, I, I also saw something really interesting online. It was a tweet that someone said that Prince Harry was the husband Diana needed. And I totally agree with that. And no one, you know, one of the things during that documentary I was taking notes, um, no one wanted to admit that there was anything about race involved, but the way they treated and um, Megan and just like that discussion about Megan and Archie, you know, not having security and, um, you know, then having questions about how dark the baby's skin would be. It's all just so it's, it's just heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. And I think, I think if there's one person on earth that would understand it, it would have been Diana. The other thing I wanted to note too about Meghan Markle, and I'm sure, you know, this would have happened in, to Diana if Diana was, you know, in the same scenario in 2021, is that people were, you know, the British tabloid news and even the news here was calling um, their Meghan and Harry when they decided to leave the royal family and leave Britain um, and come to uh, Canada and then ultimately Los Angeles was that people were calling it Megxit, Megxit, as in Brexit, as in the all of this, the shitty things about Brexit, all the things that no one wants and that no one asked for about Brexit and how shitty it was to the country and the EU and the the UK. And people are blaming her with that that whole phrase Megxit. It's disgusting. It reminded me about the Bill Clinton impeachment when people were calling it the Lewinsky sex scandal. They're blaming the woman. Same with Britney Spears, you know, like just it's it's Britney. It's not her dad that's getting dragged. It's not the the male dominated music industry that's getting dragged. It's Britney. And so when Harry was referring to Megan saying, I didn't want to live anymore, um, it really, you know, what he knows of his mother and, and I'm, you know, he and William um, sponsored a couple of documentaries to come out about the, about Diana. And so I know he 
probably knows very, very well the inner workings of Diana um, when she was going through her years in the royal family and after. Um, but Harry said, my biggest fear was history repeating itself. He knew that his mom was suicidal. He knew that Megan was experiencing um, these suicidal ideations saying, I don't want to live anymore. And um, he knew he had to get them out. He needed to get them help. They wouldn't give her help. He needed to get support. They wouldn't give him support. They just basically said, this is how it is. Just kind of deal with it. Um, and he just, you know, he just was like, no, if this, I'm going to take my family and Megan, you know, bravely went with, and I just have to applaud them for that just amazing act of bravery. I really just think Diana would be so, so proud of the two of them. I really do. I think she would be, Harry actually says that she would feel angry. He knows that she would feel angry with how it came about with that, that is them leaving and, and coming to America, but that she would have wanted them to be happy. And she also would have seen it coming and she would have supported them throughout the whole process. He just says, he just feels bad that, um, you know, like I said earlier, that at least Megan and Harry had each other. She didn't have anyone. She, it was, she had a just as bad, but didn't have anyone. She was, he felt really let down by Charles. Like he thought Charles should have known better. He's been through something similar that Harry did. He knows what that pain feels like. And then he also said, well, Archie's his grandson. But but why is Charles acting like this? Charles cut them off. Charles wouldn't take their calls. Like he says, I'll always love them, but there's a lot of hurt that happened. And his priority is just to heal. I think Megan and Harry have a long road to go in their healing. I think, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to speculate. I just, I can imagine they have a long ways to go in their healing. Um, but I am confident that both of them are brave. They have shown us that they're brave by even just leaving, first of all, and even just asking for help, knowing they need help. Megan knew that having suicidal thoughts was not regular, was not, I don't want to use the word normal, but was not reasonable. She knew that that wasn't a thing, that that was unhealthy. And she asked for help. And that's a big thing too, is asking for help. I don't know if Diana asked for help. I'm sure she probably put some feelers out there. I mean, you have to, if, especially if you're a cancer, like you feel, I'm sure she, I'm sure she put feelers out there and probably didn't get the help and support, but she was, but she didn't have the Harry. She had the Charles and that's where her story ended. And I think, I think we can all really send that, that we can capture Diana's spirit and we can capture, you know, like use her story to push forward and to keep bringing these systemic things to light. I really do think that we are on the cusp of changing things for good. And I think that's an incredible thing. And I'm, I think Diana would be incredibly happy, happy, happy to know that. Oh, okay. I'm going to leave it there because you know what? My body's literally tingling all over because I'm just covered in goosebumps. Watch the Oprah documentary if you have, or interview, sorry, if you have not already seen it. Like I said, click and consume with compassion. That's what Monica told us. That's what Megan told us. That's what Britney Spears has told us, the Free Britney movement. Just make sure as you go on that you click and consume with compassion and always know that there's always something behind the picture, always, even on social media with people that you kind of know, like even if you don't know them super well, there's always, 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 always something behind the image that you are not seeing. Okay. With that said, <laughs> going to wrap it up there next week. Oh my gosh. Nineties kids. I have the most fun episode on doc for next week. You won't even, I, I don't even want to spoil it, but let's just say, um, if you watched TV in the nineties, you know exactly what, what this community, this, this is a community. It, it wasn't just a TV phenomenon. It was a community. So we got a really fun episode headed your way. Really incredible interview with a really influential person and, um, cannot wait for you to hear it. Make sure you stay tuned for that. Follow us on social media, TTTH pod on Twitter, talk to the hand pod on Instagram. You can follow me at, or you can find us at talk to the hand or email us at talk to the hand gmail.com. Again, please, uh, leave us a five-star review and, um, leave a comment in there with your name. If you want to be entered, into our March giveaway for five-star review if you want a really cool 90s swag box. And I know you do because we're a 90s kid and you've listened to this whole episode. So make sure you do, okay? That'd be great. All right. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week for a fantastic episode as always, but this is a extra special one. And until then, mask up, socially distance, be a good human, and be excellent to each other. Thanks everyone. Have a great week.